there's a couple of things to say in addition about what creative bureaucracy is, which is it's trying to create an organizational type or atmosphere or culture that is more about moving from a no-because culture to a yes-if culture. This is Curiosity That Matters, the show where we explore ideas that help shape a better world and talk to the people behind them. I'm your host, Nadim Shuker. My guest today is Charles Laundry, a renowned urbanist, author, and advocate for creativity in public administration. Charles, welcome to the show. Hello, glad to be here. You're the author of several influential books on urban planning and development, including The Creative City and The Art of City Making. You created the Creative Cities Index, and you're the initiator of the Creative Bureaucracy Festival, which will be central to our conversation today. But before we dive in, help me understand one thing. Why is a renowned urbanist living in the middle of nowhere in the UK countryside? Excellent question. Many people have asked me that. Now, partly it is to do with wanting two things at the same time. Of course, I like the vibrancy or the things that a city can offer. But at the same time, I like emptiness. And because my work makes me move around quite a lot, I often need to stand back and breathe deeply. And so that's why I live there. But in fact, I'm in cities all the time. So it's not an either-or thing. This this feeling of emptiness that is needed or the, the, let's say, pursuit of that, how does it help you in your process of thinking about creativity? Well, it's really crucial because I'm trying to get a a sort of blank canvas or a blank mind or when I say open, it's perhaps not the right word, but a mind that is ideally clear and fresh. And, And that does help me looking into nothingness. And of course, if you have too much stimulation, sometimes you get scrambled and I'm trying to always unscramble things. I'm trying to separate out the clear from the complicated, from the complex, the chaotic and the confused, if I can put it like that. A skill probably that many bureaucrats are asked today to to have. We're going to come to that later, but just before we started recording, I shared a piece of paper with you with a list of words on it. Do you mind reading them out loud for our listeners? Incrementalism plus risk aversion. Process over outcome. Slow and intransparent. Not human friendly. Compliance plus fairness. Ignorance inefficient. What do you think those words are associated with? Well, you've given me a hint. (laughs) It's clearly to do with public administrations, but it could be to do with other aspects of life as well. I mean, there are many organizations that are like that. You know, your big corporations are just as bad, so let's not pretend. So I, over the weekend, I was inspired by, the, by a question you ask on your website and posed a similar one to my LinkedIn network. What words, feelings, emotions do you associate with bureaucracy? Is it normal that people have these types of answers? In general, there are a series of cliches that, that people have, and, and obviously some of these things are true, but they're equally not true. And the whole thing about my take on creativity on something or so is, is really taking a glass-half-full approach to sort of look at things ideally positively. And if I may, I may talk about the origins of the concept of the creative bureaucracy because, of course, it's an oxymoron. And the word creative sounds, hey, it's very exciting, ah, great, etc. It's hip, it's cool, sort of those types of words. And bureaucracy has the opposite, rigid, dull, inflexible, and so on. And so I wanted to put them together as a way of clashing the words, as an oxymoron, of course, in order to make the listener, the person who you're talking to, think, what the hell do you mean? And... 
I what I'm really trying to say in bigger terms is there are, I think, 80 million people who are in public service in Europe, just as an example, including teachers, nurses, and all of that, not only people in the public administration themselves. And not all of them are stupid. We know that <laughs> many of them are interesting. So I'm trying to signal to all of that group that is usually seen as more dull than less dull that, yes, they've got imagination too and they are curious about life, etc. So, So that's the inspiration. Now, clearly, we know, most people know, that there are many changes that should happen within administrations of all sorts. But if we had a, a, an idea, a concept that sort of said, oh, get yourself together and reform yourself and innovate, that's not a very psychologically adept way of speaking to people. So I, I'm trying to go with people's inner yearnings and emotions and work with those. So I think that's a better way of trying to address change processes. You just answered the question basically I opened up with. I mean, Charles, I'm curious, what is creative bureaucracy? But why does it matter? Well, there's a couple of things to say in addition about what creative bureaucracy is, which is it's trying to create an organizational type or atmosphere or culture that is more about moving from a no-because culture to a yes-if culture. And if you looked at that more in terms of organizations as a whole, you would say, what are the incentives and regulations and policies and things you do in an organization and how can you rethink them for today and how people feel about life and so on? How can they be future-proof for tomorrow and also have some agility within them? Secondly, how can you, with all sorts of organizations, shift the inner life so people can give more of what they can or be the best they can be, as the cliche goes. And thirdly, how can they relate to the outside worlds? You know, if you're a public institution, to the civic worlds, the business worlds and academic worlds in a better way. And so why does it matter? Why does it matter? Is because the old ways don't really work as well as they should do. And that's the simplest way of putting it. So the other thing you could say, if you do these other things about making the inner life better, people will be more productive. They'll be happier. They'll they'll like going to work. They won't say, when you ask me as a colleague, can you help me? And it's three minutes to five. And if the organization is not a warm organization, one that does these positive things, you say, sorry, guys, I've just got to go home. I've got something else to do. Whereas if I like the organization, I say, sure, sure, Nadim, what, what, what is it? And off we go. And I forget about time. Indeed. What can we do together? What, what, you know, what could be a positive outcome of such a thing? It, it sounds a bit like what you described is very much related to the individuals, to the bureaucrats, to people working in such organizations, which could translate into the fact that the words you just read out are more of an indictment, let's say, of the system in which they work rather than of, of these individuals by themselves. Yes. I mean, clearly, in any organization, and it could also be a private organization or a civic organization, there are different types of people and there's human frailty. You know, some people are a pain in the neck and they want to control things. They're not very open. They want to protect territory and all of that. So let's take that as a, as a given. But it's interesting because, of course, it starts with individuals and my whole interest in creativity as a thing in itself started by seeing so many people, friends that I knew, who I just felt, hey, you're quite interesting. You've got so much more. Why can't it be expressed? What are the obstacles and barriers? I remember meeting a good friend of mine who's a deputy head or was a deputy head of a school. I just thought, Christ, why don't they allow you to express yourself more fully? But then I thought, well, of course, there's the organization. And I could have focused only on individuals, but then I thought, organizations, how do they work? 
And there something different then happens because then you're dealing with a number of individuals together and how do they interact and how do they give each other space? So you're then beginning to think of things like hierarchies or different organisational forms. Could there be something beyond hierarchy? And then I thought, what's the most complicated human artefact that we've ever made and created? It's the city. And then there are all these individuals and these organisations with all their cultures and different aspects and prejudices and lifestyles, etc. How do you bring them together into something that is broadly aligned and allows, in this case, that complexity of the city to be, again, to use the phrase, to be of its best? You mentioned the word culture. Is there one particular part of the world where you see bureaucrats are being most creative? Do you think there's any pattern there? Well, firstly, you have to say that there are all forms of creativity everywhere. So you might think if you were being Eurocentric, oh, this is typically a European thing and stuff like that, or the Americans, if you want to be Americocentric or something, North America, oh, there, because they're sort of about freedom and all of these sort of things, are they really a different matter? But then the question is, I've always, when I wrote the Creative City book initially a long, long time ago, I was always looking at creativity from Africa, from India and all of that. So basically, creativity is a solving, a problem-solving capacity. So in short, you find it everywhere, whatever the circumstances are, and it is context-driven. If you were to look at Europe, you can say, in terms of the public administration, you could say the Nordic countries although some people think, oh, my God, it's cold. Uh, what do they know about anything? <laughs> are really quite <laughs> stimulating in the things they've done and the experiments they do, you know, the, the, the Dutch as well and so on. And people say that the Brits are quite creative, although voting for Brexit wasn't very creative. So there are differences. I think you have to say about Germany, and this is why I'm so pleased our festival happens in Berlin, is because they're sort of probably more mm, bureaucratic than others. And there are reasons for this. Obviously, their history, the Nazi period, and the, the idea that there is a Rechtsstaat where you have rights and laws and so on. But it, there's a certain lack of adaptability. I think the Mediterranean countries, which have a sort of, and these are all cliches to some extent, a sort of free-floating joie de vivre sometimes, not always, there is such a spaghetti of rules and regulations that the sort of creativity that they adopt often is this jigging around and circumventing rules. So there's not one size fits all. But as a reminder, you know, Latin America, Africa, Asia, they all have very interesting ways of addressing and solving problems too. It's very interesting when you mention the, the spaghetti, let's say, of rules and regulations. Uh, it, a discussion we keep having, myself being Lebanese with my girlfriend being German, that, you know, generally speaking, we take rules and regulations to be a suggestion, I guess, in, in Mediterranean or Lebanese, uh, from a Lebanese perspective. And I guess that pushes a bit the boundaries of what it means to be creative and to test and to experiment. I'm holding in my hand the book of Edward Wilson on the origins of creativity. And, you know, reading at the first page, he says, what then is creativity? It is the innate quest for originality. What do you think of that? Well, I... Yes and no is my answer to that. I mean, clearly... You know, if you ask me, am I creative and am I original? I'm not sure. Perhaps I am, perhaps I'm not. To me, it's about this innate quest, if we're using his phrase, quest, to address issues that confront us in our life and, in other words, then to solve them in various ways. So yes and no is my answer to that. Interestingly, he continues to say the driving force is humanity's instinctive love of novelty, the discovery of new entities and processes, the solving of old challenges and disclosure of new ones 
the aesthetic surprise of an unanticipated facts and theories, the pleasure of new faces, the thrill of new worlds. Yeah, I mean, I can agree with all of that, yes. Is that what you're trying to bring to the surface in in terms of the Creative Bureaucracy Festival, in that there still is a lot of room within bureaucracy for ways to explore these new challenges for novelty, uh, for originality, for pioneering. Yes, I mean the, the, what I the, the the main sentence of that if I were to summarize a three hundred page book, the Creative City, a toolkit for urban innovators, it's how in a time of dramatic change do you create the conditions for people to think, plan, and act with imagination to create opportunities and solve problems. So that aligns, I think, a bit with that. So is it novelty I'm thinking of? I wouldn't perhaps use the word novelty, but I'm certainly thinking you have to experiment to work out what works. And I am also probably saying try and be a pioneer, not a pioneer for the sake of just being a pioneer, but again to address what is the aim of your institution. If your aim of your institution is to serve the public, the world, and all of that, whatever you're doing, experiment with ways to do that better. And I suppose what I'm also always saying, creativity for me is providing oneself with the opportunity to think afresh. And by thinking afresh and reassessing what you've done, which might lead to novelty, invention, innovation, and all of these things, you at least have the opportunity to work out, did that work, the tried and tested, or did it not? So to give oneself some moment, a very long moment, by the way, (laughs) to create back to that empty space, to really stand back. But, of course, public administrations, why it's so interesting to link creativity to it is because often what the public wants is some sort of sense of stability, routine, certainty, and so on. And you're placing into that matrix of words, concepts, things, certainty, for example, this thing about flexibility, agility, responsiveness, and all of that. And that is, I'm using the word clash, not in a sense of clash, a noise, but it creates a bit of attention. And we are in the process of working through, I think, collectively, globally, ideally, how to marry these two things that seem to be on opposite sides of the fence in order to address specific issues that we need to deal with. You mentioned that once in in one of your interviews, I think good creative city making is more like improvised jazz rather than a well-tempered symphony performance. And I'm imagining, you know, when I'm just looking at improvised jazz, it's really adapting to those different notes and and building, you know, and and working together, just experimenting, basically. Yeah. Well, I, I can't, because I believe that to be true, I can't really comment on that, but that's really... What's embedded in this improvised jazz is a sense of alertness and awakeness and really not the opposite of what's the time? I arrived at nine, it's nearly lunch, it's nearly five o'clock and I'm leaving. So it's a different sort of human attitude to the, to, to the work you, you do. It's more about flow. And again, many of the words one uses in terms of creativity, for some people they might sound a bit vague and swimmy and all of that, you know, other words one uses sort of fluidity and, and so on. But unfortunately, that's just what life is. If you're responding in a good way, in my view, to the circumstances around you, you you need to, in your body language as well as everything else you have and your mind, have that ability to, to react to circumstances as they change and emerge. It's very interesting, the, the choice of words you just made, um, responding in a good way. One of the comments on the LinkedIn 
you know, question that I posed was that bureaucracy was, let's say, too obsessed with, with um, doing things right rather than doing the right things. You, you used good rather than right. This definition of right and wrong, is it restrictive in that sense when we're speaking of, of systems of bureaucracy? Well, I mean, I think what you said, uh, doing the right thing versus doing things right and so on, was, was, was a good quote, and it is part, part of that. Uh, the reason I suppose I, I'm saying good is because I'm linking it to some aim, some purpose, and good in this case I'm defining as the public interest, a vast subject, of course, the mm -hmm. public good, a vast topic. But that's the political process that agrees that. So we might say, for example, that the public good at the moment might be that you give people the opportunity to have agency. Another word might be to empower people or something or to give them agency to feel that they're more part of decision making rather than decisions only made upon them. Now, I'm not pretending that everybody in any place just all wants to be involved actively and all, all of that. They just want to get on with their life. But to f have an environment where there's more of that, I think, creates that word, you know, people use the word inclusive, but feels more inclusive than the one that is more, you know, from the top downwards that ultimately veers you towards autocracy. Some people, of course, feel quite comfortable when someone is just telling them what to do and then they don't have to think and they just sit down and have a meal and have a beer, but, you know. Is, is the general perception then, you know, that tends to be more towards the negative with an association with the word bureaucracy coming from the fact that, first of all, the public is generally dealing with bureaucrats at a surface level in terms of paperwork, things that need to get done, things that need to follow process. But then really behind the scenes, in, in the back office, as, as Giulio Quagiotto likes to call it, there's a lot of creative bureaucrats doing things or attempting to do things, you know, for the greater good. How do we find them? How do they make space for themselves even to, to push the boundaries? Well, you're right. I mean, mostly our relations with the bureaucracy tend to be when there's an issue of some sort. And you, you do find them, in some sense, they seem like faceless individuals behind whatever they are, and you can't even get to speak to them sort of thing. So, so, so there is that sort of blankness, which is obviously creates the prejudice. And some of these prejudices are valid because there are certain rules that are completely absurd, which, of course, is the things we're trying to address. The, what we're trying to do is to celebrate or at least to signal to the public administrator that they've got something to offer and bring them out, these unsung heroes and heroines, and let them meet the, each other. And a lot of what's happened in the creative bureaucracy is people said, I didn't realise there were so many of us. And that simple gathering together, many have said it was like, like collective psychotherapy being at that event, I'm not saying it's always like that, but nevertheless, that's our intention to say there is more of us. We are a movement in the making. And also, clearly, to rebalance the way the world, you know, under the neoliberal regime, which was more saying the only good things are happening when the private sector, they're the only people that know, and sort of to downgrade these other sorts of people, if I can call them that. So I'm just trying to rebalance that. Now, clearly, our ultimate aim is to say, well, there are values within all of these sectors, the private all, and the civic and all of that. And we need to find a way of bringing out mutual respect. And ultimately, I think many of the solutions that we need to find won't lie only within the public administration, the bureaucracy, but will lie in collaborations of various sorts. Another important point to make is that often one's focusing, or we're focusing partly on the bureaucrat themselves, but in fact the bureaucrat is linked to the politician. If you've got a lousy politician who's a pain in the neck, then they can do nothing because they're restricted in their action, whereas a door opener 
of a politician uh, enables people to, 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 to find ways of solving their problems and so on. So that's a very crucial issue one, one has to address too, the relationship between the politician and the bureaucrat. Part of what you mentioned regarding, you know, the neoliberal approach, let's say, or or the way governments are currently run makes me think of the work of Professor Mazzucato on the entrepreneurial state. You know, in a sense, I, I see what you're trying to do as helping bureaucrats understand the entrepreneurial nature, potentially, of their jobs, right? And and the possibility to, to imagine and do more. Mazzucato says... Uh, in many of her policy workshops and trainings, she often goes in as a policy advisor and goes out as a life coach. And then, you know, in one conversation I've had with her, she, she said, we've completely unimagined the potential role of government. So we've ended up with, this is a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, pretty inertial, bureaucratic and problematic structures within our governments. Can you say a couple words on this, you know, idea of this is a self-fulfilling prophecy? Of, of, well, of course, if the world around you describes you in a certain way, it doesn't necessarily give you confidence because all these people, these millions of people we're talking about, live a life and then often they tell me, I don't even dare to say what I do because the implication will be that people will have cliches and views uh, around me and prejudices. So these things do become self-fulfilling prophecies, particularly since various approaches, the neoliberal one, for example, has taken lots of the resources out of public administration and particularly the thinking resources. There usually are, let's call them strategy departments, they have various names, foresight, or whatever they have. There are these departments, and often when there's a cut, and there's been so many over the years, those are just sort of cut away. And you bring in an external consultant who essentially tells the internal body what to do. So the relationship between the public administration and the external consultant can be pernicious in some sense, because again, it sort of implies because you haven't, you've knocked off the thinking capacity of the place and then there are all these drones who don't know what to do uh, and so on. So, so, so that's, I think that is partly true. The other concept that I developed a long time ago was called civic creativity. And when I talked about the Creative City book, the first one I wrote many, many years ago, we, really it's about combining this notion of civic responsibility with an entrepreneurial attitude because we associate being entrepreneurial only with I'm running a business and I'm trying to sell X, Y, Z. But entrepreneurialism is actually, to me at least, the capacity to think, to have ideas, to respond, all the things we discussed earlier. So there's social entrepreneurship, as we know, of course. There's various forms of entrepreneurship. And I think embedding that in the public administration is very important. And if at the same time that public administration has is being seen as having greater value in the external world, then you've begun to have the conditions for things in principle to work better. When you speak of those conditions and that capacity that you know you say is very important for government, you also mentioned the need for collaboration between the public sector and the rest of the civic ecosystem, let's say, or whether it's the private sector, academia, etc. But both in in what you said before and also, you know, one of the words that Mazzucato uh, used this 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 problem that we're having in terms of imagination it's as if it's been stripped away from the public sector. Um, there's interesting work being done on what's being called imagination infrastructure and how important this is in order for individuals within organizations and organizations, be it the public sector, to have this agency to work together and try to imagine what could a solution be, what are you know what is happening, how do we solve it, uh, um, how are things interconnected? Can you speak a bit towards, you know, what what this let's well, say lack uh, in imagination that we're facing is? Yes, I mean the the, the 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 debate around the topics we're talking about now started largely with the notion of creativity, uh, 
And certainly from my perspective, about 25 years ago, I sort of realised I shouldn't have started off with the notion of creativity, but curiosity. I was working in a, a very poor area in the northeast of England, and someone was saying, oh, isn't it about time these young people, unemployed guys and girls, became entrepreneurial and did a start-up? And then I said, this is absolutely crazy. Their parents are unemployed. They've never had a job. What you need to do is trigger their curiosity. And if you trigger their curiosity, and it might be going with the flow of what their own interests are, which may be music, just get them into some sort of music context where they're rehearsing a feeling, gaining confidence and all of that, which doesn't mean they'll ultimately become a famous pop star or anything like that, but they'll learn skills along the way. They may be technical, and those technical skills, and there's been so much work done around that sort of approach, that that provides confidence to, to work in other spheres. So I then shifted my way of thinking about this and sort of said the primary thing is to generate curiosity. Secondly, if you are curious, you are likely, you might have imagination because you can then have something that's going on in your mind. That may lead to some creative ideas, let's say eight, of which six are not very useful, but you've tried and tested them through feedback and so on. And that might lead to an invention, whatever that might be, an invention in this context we're talking about, it might be a new way of doing something in an in a institution. And that may become an innovation, i.e. it's applied. Now, if you've got that process of curiosity, imagination, creativity, etc., you then regain this notion that goes in a circle back to curiosity. So that's really the cycle. So when we talk about in, in, in imagination infrastructure, all that is, not all that is, I think it's great, it's a very good concept, is providing context, conditions and processes within which in organisations people can have that capacity again to give of their best, and give of their best may not always be wonderful, but nevertheless, these voices are coming out, and when different voices come together, which I think is really interesting, often one plus one equals three. I mean, what we're going beyond, or what I'm going beyond, is the hero-heroine view of the world, that there's this god-goddess-like figure who comes in and says everything and knows what the answer is. Now, I do believe occasionally there are really inspirational people, but even with the inspirational person, because we're dealing with complexity and complex organisations and things like that, it's very good if they're humble. Because if you combine humility with all these other things that are coming up, these energies, you probably get a more resilient, I suppose, answer or solution. Because although these processes take longer than, let's say, somewhere across the world saying, this is the way we're doing it, one, two, three, four, and off you go, which sometimes can seem very efficient and effective. I think given, and we're speaking here from within Europe, you might have a kickback later. And that kickback could be quite, quite negative. And I think so many of our problems that we face to do with, you know, racism and all of the sort of things that we're, we're seeing is to do with people feeling out of control. And because things are moving too fast upon them, that they, they then go in their shell and then have these sort of visceral gut reactions. So I think having in imagination infrastructures, which I'm seeing basically as a context within which you can give a lot of yourself, that releases some of that tension, ideally, because people think they're makers, shapers and co-creators of the evolving world we are in. So that outlet for curiosity, for creativity, that uh, possibility to exchange, also have different views, building, you know, idea or co-creating ideas together. You You talked about this need to maybe have be subjected right to different ideas and in in one of our prep calls for this you said i know we're different but what can we do together this is one big question you ask yourself when you were thinking of the creative city can you talk more about you know th this this 
the evolution of that thought for you. What were you, how did you see possibilities of working together when you first started out in the 70s? And how has that evolved for you in terms of, you know, how citizens, how the public sector are, is able to work together for the public good? Well, the, the, I described earlier how I went from the individual to the organization to the city. When I was looking at the city as a potentially creative entity and the first line of the book, the original book, was it's a clarion call to thinking afresh. So it's not saying it's an answer. It's sort of it's always in the making. So there's, it's about a process of always in the making. And initially we focused very much on what the contribution of arts and culture could be, partly because cities were declining and all sorts of stuff was happening and et cetera, et cetera. And that was a source of confidence building for the cities themselves to acknowledge who they are, et cetera, et cetera. But then I realized there were other forms of creativity, social innovation, of course, business innovation, scientific innovation, which ultimately led me in the early 2000s to think of the creative bureaucracy. So all of these threads are following each other. And I kept on thinking, how do... This is all an ecosystem, isn't it? Why aren't these different forms of innovation or creativity connecting? Why aren't they co-learning? And when you took a helicopter view, you could see all these projects that all seem to be very interesting, let's say, achieving an opportunity or solving a problem, but they weren't doing it together. And I suddenly thought back to the, the magic number one plus one equals three. And that's just my shorthand for saying together. Now, I'm not saying that we do together every single moment at every moment because we, we can exaggerate it all. You know, just like this distinction, everything has to be bottom up, nothing top down. Well, you know, occasionally someone who's thought about something for 20 years has got a reasonably good idea about problem X or Y. So, But I'm trying to dissolve those boundaries, for example, between top down and, 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 and bottom up. So that begins to bring you somewhere together in a, 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 a middle. And... You know, I mean, you know, co-creation, of course, is a buzzword. So many of the words we're using become eaten up as buzzwords and, and lose, their, lose their meaning. But in my own life experience, I've, I've noticed even organising the Creative Bureaucracy Festival, although it's sort of my idea, the whole thing. I mean, the concept is my idea. I've been so refreshed by working with younger people who look at things slightly differently and the conversations we're having is, you know, just leading to, I think, more interesting solutions and even the way we're organising the event itself. So I've been really pleased, and perhaps it's because I'm an old dog now, to sort of relax more and just sort of give give way but also take in you know you give way and it's again again I think the way I would look at it is you should look at it a bit like Tai Chi you know slow moving in and out breathing in breathing out and essentially to slightly slow down and not be so hectic so all of that to me I know that doesn't sound like being together but it's sort of relating differently to the people around you. Essentially, the core quality of everything we're talking about is being more opening, open, being willing to listen. And so a lot of what is called together is not necessarily a room where 20 people are sitting is really what I'm trying to say. It could be two people, it can be four, it can be virtually on a call, etc., etc. But it's certainly allowing more stuff to come in to create a solution. Back to that concept of, of emptiness a bit and openness that you, mm. you know, we started this, this episode with. I want to switch gears a bit here and, and speak to some extent about curiosity as a process uh, and more specifically for you. Um, during our prep call, you also told me the work I did in cities requires an intense nosiness and curiosity. Can you talk us through the role that curiosity plays 
in your work for you? Well, it's just endemic, you know. I mean, when when you say the role, it, it's a bit like here I am, and I look at something and I see a role. I mean, I, I, I can't even get the word role because it's not a role; it's who I am. Do you see what I mean? I can't. I, I can't even answer the question. You know, people accuse me at home of saying, oh, in five minutes they'll ask you, how much money have you got in your bank? <laughs> <laughs> Which is not necessarily true. But, but uh, you, you, you know, we have so many codes of behaviour norms, one of which is, we, for example, we rarely talk about money and our real circumstances, and then you, you get to a sort of superficial level in, in conversation. But I think the main point about nosiness is sharp observation is really, if you're, for example, doing the things I do in cities, you have to really look at every sign and symbol. And, you know, we talked earlier before this call about the sensory landscape of cities where I often, you know, touch places, smell it, you know, look at it from, from every sense. And this sort of gathering the resources, the knowledge of everything that's there seems to me absolutely uh, crucial. So in that sense, I'm your classic curioso. <laughs> If we can call a curious person a curioso. I like that naming. Uh, so, 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 so that is my identity. It's just simply what I feel, what I am. And that's what gives me life energy and passion and I say passion is a pompous word but 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 if it is my lifeblood and that curiosity also led us back to the togetherness thing about people of difference you know the taxi driver here just I came here was from Ghana so I'm of course asking him what language he speaks and it's called ga and you, you know and what was it like coming in anyway that's just a version of being a cu curioso which led me with my organization Comedia at the time to to do a five year project on the intercultural city, which again, which was saying, Yeah, it's sure, you know, you're Lebanese, Nadim. I'm actually I look sound quite British, but my parents are German, you know, I sort of was brought up in Italy as well. So so I've always been interested going beyond, let's say, multiculturalism, the separation, to what can we do jointly? Where do we share? What do we share? And what we share is often more than you think. And even what we share is often between generations. You know, an old person quite might like to hang out in a cafe and look at the world go by, as might a young person. And they might be sitting near each other. So... You know, community is built up of masses of micro-interactions. Some are serendipitous and unplanned. And then, of course, back to the co-creation thing, at some point you might say, gathered it together yeah. and to focus on an issue. I recently came across an article by Sam Rye around what he's calling relational infrastructure. So really transferring that that concept of imagination, speaking of the relationships between different individuals, communities, within communities, so that togetherness to some extent that you're mentioning and how it influences our ability to think together, imagine a new world. One of the ways you were helping us imagine what, what a new world could look like is through publications. Is writing one of the vehicles through which you pursue and cultivate that curiosity at a publishing house at some point? Yeah, if yeah. If I'm mistaken. What role did that play in that journey of yours? Yeah, one word I want to use now, which doesn't link to publishing, is really this word yearning. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what I'm trying to talk about is trying to tap into the yearnings I think both I have, and I'm then extrapolating that onto the rest of the world and hoping that we can create joint yearnings. And I'm trying to then think through... How does the world work? And I, I believe, and I can only say this now retrospectively, that I felt there were so many blind spots in the way we think, if we just relate it to cities to cities, the way we think about it. And so a lot of the stuff about the creative city was essentially trying to, 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 to address that. 
And then I developed a series of shorter things, books, some of which I wrote on my own and some of which I got a partner. I lured a partner in <laughs> to co-write it with, with me. And the process of writing to me is a process of deep liberation because I'm not so concerned about is it 100% right because you often also can't predict what people say about what you've written. You know, like The Creative City, when I wrote about it first in the late 80s, you know, did, people didn't talk about gentrification, and now some people accuse me, you gentrifier, didn't you realise that you would... Of course I didn't realise that. But the process of writing little books like Psychology and the City, which people never have... I mean, they're not enough insight about how people as human beings act psychologically and how the city affects them, was a way of trying to fill a gap. Now, when these nine books that have been written so far of that uh, series, each of them made me feel, ah, oh, now I can be fresh again because it's on a piece of paper. Sometimes it doesn't work, sometimes it does. Some, I thought, worked quite well. The Century Landscape of City I was particularly pleased about. Others, cities of ambition, yeah, I could say more. The psychology in the city has started a debate and we now psychoanalyze cities through our urban psyche test. And so, in a funny way, there's this releasing and then you can look, again, I'm always using the word look afresh, and some of these things, just being purely self-centred and egotistical, then become sort of products because, you know, I increasingly decided I didn't want to run an organisation having done that for 35 years. I thought, I just want to collaborate with people on projects that we jointly find interesting. And all of this stuff is part of the background of doing that. And some of it, as I said, becomes a product where someone says, oh, could you measure the psychological pulse of my city, for example? How did you overcome the initial fear? And this is a very personal, I'm personally very curious about this, of writing something and, you know, having it be an artifact in other people's hands that they can make what they do of it in terms of their opinions, in terms of, uh, you know, whatever they might think of such an artifact. It, it almost feels like you're giving away that almost ownership, right? But was there a fear associated with that in the writing process? Uh, initially, th 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 there was, and uh, that's why I, I started by writing stuff often with other people. These might have been articles or something like that, so that's always helpful, so you share the blame or whatever, um, so, so that. But then through practice, and then I decided at some point, because when I set up Comedia and, and I began to, to write books then, already then, you know, I don't know how many I've written, 20 or something, I also had a publishing house, which was, people say, you know, very advanced and, you know, put issues on the agenda, etc. Well, it's very nice of people to say that. So I had, in a sense, a group around me. And because that was getting resonance and people were being generally positive, that obviously gave me confidence. Then after a while... Just doing more of it is just a question of practice and sort of, I'm not saying I don't care, but I'm trying not to listen to the noise. Comedia is communication and, and media is about getting the message across, which was, a, you know, something that you were very concerned with. You, you, I think, if I read correctly, at some point were almost concerned that part of the reason why we're having so many problems is that the message is not getting across and it's not being communicated properly. Yeah. I mean, my main interest in life is 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 messaging, actually. And when I, I don't know, again, you asked me, it is interesting that you asked that question, Comedia, because where did the name come from? It came out, at, simply out of my head sometime, and I sort of thought, oh, people might think, are we a comedy organisation? And I thought, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Look, we need to be quite playful, Because things are so serious. So, yes, communication is, 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 is the central thing I'm interested in. How you communicate things clearly. I'm not saying I'm doing it myself, but I'm always looking at encapsulating phrases, which is why people think I'm sometimes a bit sloganistic, like 
with the creative bureaucracy. How do you move from a no because to a yes if culture? Of course, that's easy to say and difficult to do. What does it mean? But each of these things in a world where there's too much noise and phrases get eaten up, I'm trying to now broaden the phrase so it can't be eaten up too quickly. So one of my latest big books, which is a fat book, which has just sort of got hundreds of photos in and all of that sort of stuff that I've taken, is called The Civic City in a Nomadic World. So that's such a long title that it couldn't be eaten up. So, But I'm always trying to watch what the words are in the thing, which is why for me, I was, I just loved the word creative bureaucracy, colon, and its radical common sense is what the title of the book. And now I feel what's more important is less the word creative bureaucracy, but more the radical common sense to do things that are quite path-breaking, ideally pioneering or radical. You know, I mean, obviously, everybody's always talking about systems change and stuff like that. And it's not going to happen unless you're radical. Which brings me back to almost my opening question of, of why does creative bureaucracy matter? And your opening paragraph, I think, in the civic city, um, living in nomadic times, we live in awkward times. The world is turning to its darker face. The zeitgeist is one of rising anxiety. The gray zone disappears deep fractures are emerging within our world. This was in 2017. Mm. This has been not only confirmed, but I think reinforced to a power of 10. If you were to say, yes, creative bureaucracy, curiosity, creativity matters now more than ever, what are we at risk of if we stay the course, if we're not radical enough? Well, just to speak in ordinary language, we're fucking up the place. So, so it's as simple as that. Uh, and, and, and so then the question is, how can we get a conversation and then action, obviously, together with people who are beyond the smaller group that we often find ourselves in? And again, trying to communicate in ways that larger groups feel they understand and, and feel they can be compelled in a story of what is possible is, 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 is really crucial. And this notion that, that, you know, another world is possible, which of course it is in our imagination, which is why imagination is so important, is really crucial. But when, you know, someone said it's easier to think of the fall of the world than to remake it, therefore you need imagery. And that imagery is both concepts, it's pictures, it's obviously stories and all of that. It's somehow communicating in such a way that someone could feel viscerally what this other type of place could be like and how it could be good to you. Because those individuals then have all these daily struggles to persuade someone who's being a bit sort of simplistic, you know, where, let's say, profit-making interests are so high to react because there's millions of reactions that need to be taking place and people saying, no, we're not allowing this to happen. And so that person needs strength and energy and ultimately confidence. And so everything I'm trying to say and do is hopefully about engendering confidence in, in the reader or, 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 or the person who's participating, which is what we're trying to do with the creative bureaucracy, give these unhung sung heroes and heroines a voice that, that what they're doing is good. We were sitting in a podcasting studio in a backyard here in Berlin, just at the intersection of Mitte and Kreuzberg. It's in an old factory. It's being repurposed. I think a lot of you know artists and, and some studios here. You chose Berlin as the home of the Creative Bureaucracy Festival where you're trying to get that message across of th this visceral reaction, let's say, that you're trying to produce in terms of getting us to imagine what things could be um, and hopefully what they should be. 
It's interesting, though, that you chose Berlin. Is this a city where the contrast between the city's creativity and the creativity of its bureaucracy is most flagrant? Well, firstly, to say the city chose me because Sebastian Turner, who is the co-creator of the festival because he used to be the publisher of the Tagesspiegel and now runs his own organization, Table Media, I had a conversation with him and said, oh, could you promote this of an event I want to do? And he said, add the word festival. It makes it sound more crazy. And he had the organizational resources to make the first festival happen in in um, uh, 18. So I, it only happened because he helped me and he was there. And so his energy, etc. Berlin, though, is also really quite symbolic for me because it's like a coming home because my parents lived in Berlin and they were emigres and although my name is Landry, it's a fake because my grandfather was an opera singer and he was called Schmidt and <laughs> Landry sounded so sophisticated uh, as an opera singer. But they had to flee. They weren't Jewish, but they worked for a Jewish publisher and so there's always been that. And, you know, I lived in Germany as a younger person as well in Munich then at some time for many years, actually. So it's symbolic for me in many, many ways, not only the way that you described aptly of, yeah, it's cool type stuff. Is it still cool is a different question. That's for the cooler, the coolers to answer. <laughs> But there's certainly a sharp distinction, which is historically partly also defined, between the bureaucracy of Berlin, which is known to be a bit much. Um, but that was partly also uh, further and extenuated because of its being separated before the wall fell and lots of things. It, so it's an appropriate place. So I love the fact that it's here. Well, we do as well. I think the next festival is on June 13th. Yeah, that's right. right. So people should keep an eye out for that. Strongly recommended. I was there last year and planning to be there again this year. I just wanted to ask you two more questions. One, what was your most recent interaction with someone you would call a creative bureaucrat? What was it about? Well, I recently had an interaction with someone in Augsburg who was in charge of the Nachhaltigkeitsreferat or something, you know, the sustainability section. And he gives me this picture and he's over energetic. He's called Norbert. I've forgotten his second name, Norbert. And he was so energetic and he came with this big poster and it sort of had you know, economic, social, environmental. And then around it all was cultural. And that interaction was good because he understood, from my point of view, a key issue, and it's something I mention a lot myself, that the transition we are trying to go through is the biggest cultural project of our time because it's about values, mindsets, behaviors, skills, talents, and so on. So I, I, I like that sort of rather vigorous interaction with Norbert. This show is about exploring curiosities that matter. According to you, what should I explore next and who should I talk to? Well... It's an interesting question because there were two people who died over the last two years and I wish you had been able to talk to them. One is Jaime Lerner from Curitiba, who was the mayor and then the governor of the province. And then Ken Robinson, so Ken Robinson, an old friend of mine, whose TED talk on education kills creativity has got, I think, 170 million or 74 million viewers. So... That's avoiding the question, of course. I think there's someone I really enjoy. She's called Idoya Postigo, and she's from Bilbao, and she runs Bilbao Metropoli 30. And we're involved with a project where she's trying to really create a new network of strategic thinkers around cities that want to be disruptive, pioneering, and avant-garde. I like the word avant-garde. Lots of people say it's old-fashioned, and uh, yeah, they'll give me some context about that. I don't care, but I still like the word avant-garde. So she wants to be pioneering, disruptive, and avant-garde. Charles, thank you very much. Thank you, and I enjoyed it.
that's all we have for this episode. Curiosity That Matters is produced by me. Editing by Simon Valero from Studio 361 in Berlin. Theme music by my friend Ramzi Khalaf. You can find him on Spotify using Sundowner or Instagram by searching for Sundowner Music. Check out ctmpod.fm for show notes and more relevant resources. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter, now X, with the handle ctm underscore pod. And we're also on LinkedIn if you look up the Curiosity That Matters podcast. If you like this episode, please consider sharing with three friends who might be curious about this topic and help them subscribe. You can also help us be discovered by leaving us a review. It'll only take you 30 seconds. I'm Nadim Shukair, and I'll see you next episode.